thank you very much for joining us for our event today, which is entitled Sanctions, Politics, and Everyday Life in Iran. I'm Vali Nasser, a professor of International Affairs and Middle East Studies at Johns Hopkins Science, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to our event today. This event is part of our Rethinking Iran initiative. Uh, this initiative has launched 13 reports from an array of international scholars who have looked at the impact of sanctions on Iran. These reports uh, have uh, looked at the broad spectrum of impact of US sanctions on Iran, and they have looked at the Iran's economy, energy, environment, social, political, and cultural sectors and brought them together to provide a broad perspective on the impact of sanctions on Iran. For today's event, we're featuring the work of two of these reports. One has been written by Professor Arezu Osanlu and the other by Professor Nargis Bajogli. And they will be in a conversation with veteran journalist Laden Nasseri. Professor Osanlu's article, Entanglements, Live lives lived under sanctions, looks at the intersections of sanctions in international law with the shocks that sanctions have impacted on Iran's economy and the ways that it had led to crises that alter everyday lives in Iran. Professor Bajogli's article entitled Iran in Latin America, Shriver Cosmopolitans and the Limits of US Sanctions is a transnational study focusing on one of those countries who forged Iran's relationship, sorry, focusing on those factors that have forged Iran's relationship with Venezuela and Cuba to bust US sanctions and what the political and economic ramifications of such transnational relationships have been. Now, before I introduce our speakers for today, I'd like to invite the audience to ask questions that they may have throughout the event in the chat box on your YouTube and our team will pose those questions to our speakers during the Q&A portion of the event. Our speakers' uh, bios for today are as follows. Uh, Professor Arzu Osanlu teaches at the Department of Law, Societies, and Justice, and is the Director of Middle East Center at the University of Washington in Seattle. She's a legal anthropologist who previously worked on an immigration and, and previously worked as an immigration and asylum attorney. Her research and scholarship explored the intersections between law, culture, power, and the everyday lives of people. She's the author of Forgiveness Work, Mercy, Law, and Victims' Rights in Iran, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2020. Uh, and we were very pleased to have a session with her on that book as part of our Rethinking Iran project. And she's also the author of The Politics of Women's Rights in Iran, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2009. She's currently working on a new book project that explores the impact of sanctions on Iranians. Nargis Bajogli is an assistant professor of Middle East studies at Johns Hopkins Science. She was trained as an anthropologist and a documentary filmmaker, and is the author of Iran Reframed, Anxieties of Power in the Islamic Republic, which was published by Stanford University Press in 2019 and won the Margaret Mead Award in Anthropology. And she's also the director of the documentary film, The Skin That Burns, which was released in 2013 under survivors of chemical warfare in Iran. And she's working on a new book on that topic and the impact of uh, chemical warfare uh, used uh, on Iranians during the Iran-Iraq war. Our moderator for today's session is Laudan Nasseri, who is a well-known journalist living in New York City. Uh, previously, she was based in the Middle East and she has reported for Bloomberg News for 13 years starting as an energy and economics correspondent based in Tehran and later heading the news agency of Iran's news agency's Iran coverage out of Bloomberg's as regional headquarters in Dubai. Uh, Laudan Nasseri has covered Iran's politics and economy under three successive Iranian presidents, several rounds of nuclear negotiations leading to the 2015 Iran deal, Iran nuclear deal, and also local uh, social and political uprisings that have happened in Iran. 
She has written extensively about the, Iran's domestic politics, foreign policy, and the impact of uh, international sanctions on Iran's economy and people. She has also covered the broader region, reporting from, for Bloomberg from Muscat, Beirut, and Dubai itself. Uh, Laudan Nasseri holds a Master's of International Affairs from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, and also has a Master's of Fine Arts in Literary Nonfiction from the New School in New York. So without further ado, let me welcome our speakers. Thank him for joining us today, and I'll uh, hand the microphone to uh, Laudan Nasseri. Thank you, Vali. I'm... Thanks to Johns Hopkins and, and SAIS and also the entire team of Rethinking Iran, um, which I believe has truly um, helped elevate the discussion on, uh, on Iran, the conversation around Iran. Um, I'm very excited today to be here with both Nargis and Arezu. I have been um, reading both of their papers with, with, much, uh, with much interest. And I think that um, it's, uh, it's an honor to be discussing them today. Um, what I particularly have appreciated, aside from the work of Nargis and Arezu in, in general, their body of work, but these two papers for me um, have been, um, it, it's, it's important to get into um, several points and we'll be doing that in a moment. But I think um, what I wanted to point out before anything is that these papers have been carried both over several years of research and they um, involve numerous interviews and, and years of reporting. So this really confers a, a level of depth um, to this research that we seldom see uh, in, in mainstream media. Uh, they're also filled with anecdotes um, and so um, I really invite you to uh, go and see them, you know, read them for yourself. Um, so let's get into it. Uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up from the get-go is that we're gonna be discussing US sanctions and the intention um, was to have sanctions in place that would be so smart and targeted and that would be uh, inflicting pain to the political establishment. My personal experience from my time uh, as a reporter uh, has been that there are often unintended and unforeseen consequences that come along with that. Uh, and mostly that um, very often, not only in the case of Iran, but other states as well, it tends to straighten the result of the government. And they tend to uh, be more determined, if anything, to look for ways to circumvent them. Um, oftentimes we see that it makes corruption endemic and it negatively impacts the social fabric of society. And both of your papers, Nargis and Arezu, point to uh, some of these elements. Um, I'm going to start with Arezu. So your paper um, starts with um, your travel to Tehran in the summer of 2015. And you mentioned that there was really a lighter mood that was noticeable in the streets of Tehran. It was both, both optical, what you were seeing around the number of businessmen flying to Iran uh, on the back of the deal that happened uh, with the with, uh, international powers and Iran. You notice that, and then within a matter of three years, you know, in, in, an, in a subsequent trip to Iran in the summer of 2018, so after President Trump had decided at the time to withdraw the US from the JCPOA, you notice immediately the impact that this was having on the lives of Iranian. And uh, they, were, they seemed to be scrambling, you know, from a mood where everything seemed possible, everyone had a big plan, they seemed to be struggling now to look for a plan B. Um, and I want to quote something that you say, which is that sanctions have forced many Iranians to reconsider their social relationships, their ideas of themselves, their aspirations and their hopes for the future. And ultimately what it means to be an Iranian living under a tactical network of sanctions intended to harm them as part of a broader plan to weaken their government. Your, your research, Arizu, is much, uh, is much, you know, it's not quite from the standpoint of the Iranian economy, and, you know, we have the economic indicators for that, but it's much more examining the social effect of sanctions. And I would love to hear um, if you have, you know, if out of everybody that you interviewed, if there is, you know, a, a case that to you represents this predicament, 
of you know the social effect you know this this thing that is not quite tangible of what happens you know to the psyche of, of Iranians Uh, thank you so much. Um, first of all, thank you. I want to echo what you said, Laudan. I want to thank Johns Hopkins University and the Iran Sanctions Project team, and especially Nagez and Vali for organizing this, and Britain. Um, the, the, you so nicely kind of honed in on the aim of my, my article and the larger project. And um, there are lots of stories in the book. Uh, sorry article not yet book in the in the article that that do look at this but one that i would like to point out in particular is um a, a family that i have come to know through previous uh research um and they consider themselves a working class they live um in you know near Meiduna azadi which is in southern part of the city which is much less affluent and um, they engaged in very pro-American activities. They're very pro-American. And what really struck me when I came back um, in 2000, well, first in 2015 was how happy they were. Um, they were really excited about the possibilities for um, developing their lives. The older son got married, the, um, they, they rented an apartment, they were talking about you know, having children, the future, right? And um, within that period of time, oh, oh, and I should also say that they very much supported Trump. They very much supported um, uh, a lot of American policies, but within the few years that transpired, they, everything changed, everything changed for them. And the, the protracted nature and duration of this, which of, of the sanctions on the one hand, plus the shocks that um, have required, you know, have made the, the uh, currency become so devalued and the way that their, their earnings have fallen and the possibilities that they thought were coming have shifted. Um, they actually shifted their own way of thinking. First, they referred to themselves no longer as working class, but the working poor. And um, they shifted their ways about thinking about the United States as kind of a just and fair arbiter of um, Middle East policies or, or towards Iran. And, and what really struck me was when um, my friend, the, my interlocutor, Mahin, and all the names are chained to their anonymized, said to me, this is the one thing I agree with Iran's supreme leader on. And I said, what? And she said that America cannot be trusted. And, um, you know, they made these, these, these promises and America can't be trusted. And one, one smaller point I wanted to make is, as you mentioned, the title is about entanglements. And I, I'm pointing out how there's so much focus on the ordinary people in Iran that I talk to in what's happening on the ground in the United States, because it affects them so much. Their very isolation is an entanglement with the United States, such that I just want to read a quick passage of a a quote from Mahin that didn't make it into the article. I talked to her on November 10th, so just after the elections, and she was so excited again. She said, um, from morning to night, we prayed. We, we're, we're waiting for Joe Biden. I know we still can't trust the US, but at least he seems to be less extreme. So the, the, there's this um, way in which people are so connected with US policies because it affects their everyday lives, aspirations, dreams in a very material way. This is, this is certainly something that I've experienced as well. Uh, in, in one of the interviews that I did, it was just uh, before Trump was gonna be elected, we actually had an interview um, with a young entrepreneur in Tehran and the entire time the TV was on just following the results from US election. Um, and I, that, that is definitely the case that I think they are very much aware and engaged uh, with politics because as you say, it directly affects their, 
their lives now and in the near future. Um, Nargis, I wanted to turn to you. So in your paper, um, you talk about a term uh, which is striver cosmopolitan. It's not a term that I had heard before. Uh, I was, uh, it made me very curious and I would love for you to unpack this. Uh, but just before we get into this, um, there is, uh, there is a quote that I took from your paper, um, which says the high level of risk involved in sanctions busting from criminal prosecution to confiscation of goods to loss investment has meant that business entities tied to states and militaries are the main ones that can afford to engage in transnational trade in heavily sanctioned countries. And I think this gets to the core of your paper, which is if we are to look in terms of who are the winners, who are the losers, if we are saying that you know, the main class in Iran has been badly hit by the impact of sanctions, then who is benefiting from that, you know, under this strict regime of sanctions? I'm going to turn it to you, Nargis, if you can unpack the term and then tell us how, you know, this term has played into the context of transnational alliances between Iran, Venezuela, and Cuba. Sure. Thank you so much for that question, Lada. Um, you know, the I have been thinking about sanctions for a long time, not just vis-a-vis -vis Iran, but I've spent quite a bit of time in Latin America and specifically in Cuba, and there... Cuba has been under very, very stringent US sanctions for decades. And so it is a part of people's everyday conversations. They talk about it differently than actually it's talked about in Iran among people and among the political elite. Yet nonetheless, this uh, conversation about who do, who do sanctions benefit is one that is very much uh, alive in a society like Cuba's. And it always got me thinking to, you know, Iran is a very, very different state than, than, than Cuba or Venezuela, although slightly, it doesn't have, Cuba has virtually very few natural resources and it's an island. So the sanctions there mean that it really does uh, isolate the country in multiple ways. And you can see it materially as soon as you step off of a plane in Havana uh, in, a, in a way that you don't necessarily see the impact of sanctions in that way when you when you land in, in Iran, even under maximum pressure. Um, and so yet nonetheless, uh, how for me, it was always a question of US sanctions in a place like Cuba had not achieved the policy aims, quote unquote, of the US government uh, and, and, uh, and had helped to keep certain elements of the Cuban political and especially military elite uh, uh, in a very strong position. Uh, so when I began to think about sanctions on Iran and to really uh, follow the, the relationships that were being forged between uh, uh, those in Iran and in Cuba and Venezuela, uh, one of the first things that popped out at me was that these uh, relationships, and there was at that time during Ahmadinejad and, and Chavez, a lot of material and uh, resources being put behind the creation of these relationships because oil prices were very high and both of these uh, presidents had a, a huge coffers behind them that they could help make these relationships a reality. Uh, and so I was really interested in, in sort of tra tracing these from the Middle East into Latin America and understanding how these, these relationships were happening. And one of the things that I that popped up at me almost immediately was how these relationships were being forged by those within the military, intel, and political elites of each of these respective governments. And what that, and precisely because the quote that you picked out, Laudan, is that sanctions busting is incredibly uh, costly. Uh, first of all, actually costly. Like you have to pay much more to get goods across borders when, uh, when everything in your economic system has been sanctioned. So you need folks who have the, that capital to be able to make goods travel in that way, not independent businessmen up until a certain point no longer have that capability. Who has that capability are entities that are backed by, by state, um, state sectors of society. And then two is all of the, crim the potential criminal fallout from sanctions because sanctions is not just about 
restricting economic activity, but it's about criminalizing uh, uh, trade. It's about criminalizing anything from uh, the sanctioned country outwards. Um, and so what that meant was that you also need people in order to trade and countries will keep trade going no matter what. So you need people and you need networks that are willing to take on that political and, and risk of, of, of criminal charges. And uh, what I saw both in my time in Cuba, but then also when I began to study this transnationally was how this was uh, really coming um, from those who were extremely loyal to, to the systems and power, uh, and then were very well protected within those systems of power. Um, and now to get to your question of, of Shriver cosmopolitanism. Um, so my research um, looks at, in general, uh, what my research has looked at thus far are those who are loyal to the state in Iran, those who are loyal to the Islamic Republic. Um, and uh, my, my, for my first book, I was looking at and trying to really uncover all of the multitudes of, of what it means to be loyal to the Islamic Republic, because unlike the way that it's usually talked about, it's definitely not a monolith and there. And for those who pay attention to politics in Iran, you understand and you see all of the huge factionalism and that it's not factionalism for show, it's actually real factionalism and they really disagree and dislike one another. Um, and when I was studying uh, these relationships that were being built with Latin America in particular, um, it was during the Ahmadinejad years and the folks that came into power with Ahmadinejad were folks who had been sidelined from the political and economic spoils of the revolution within those loyal to the Islamic Republic. So not those who were opposed to it, who had been sidelined quite violently actually throughout the 1980s and into the 90s. But I'm talking about people who are loyal to the, to the Islamic Republic, but yet had not been seeing the, the, the spoils that, uh, that other folks who are loyal had been seeing. And one of the reasons for that is that uh, after the war, all of the policies, many of the policies from Rafsanjani onwards were neoliberal policies that were beginning to privatize lots of sectors of society. Um, and, the, and the trickle down effects of that were not reaching these folks that, that Ahmadinejad represented. And so when he came into power, he brought folks into power uh, who did not, were not able to be cosmopolitan in a way that is traditionally assumed, which is with ties to the Western world, but yet were striver cosmopolitan. So they wanted the same kinds of lifestyles that, cosmo that traditional cosmopolitan elites had, but they had to look for it elsewhere. And the places that they began to look for it are places where Iran is creating its so-called resistance economy. And I was paying attention to the ones that were being forged with Latin America. So essentially, what I'm getting at uh, listening to both of you is that we, we are seeing opportunities arise for certain portions of the population. So now I guess you're mentioning, you know, um, within the loyalists to the establishment, you have perhaps the, 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 the new loyalists or like, you know, the new generation of loyalists, perhaps, you know, from a more populist background. Um, and Arizu, what you were saying um, earlier as well was how the, um, you know, you kind of mentioned that, uh, but I want to get a bit more into that, which is how the, the dynamic um, can also change and alter within a system where the Iranians are subject to sanctions and that pressure, then the dynamic can change within their government. Um, so, you know, they may view differently the, the state that is imposing those sanctions on them. They may have had a favorable view of the US before, but then as a result of that, you know, there's a switch that happens there. But, you know, there's a continuation of that also for the people that you um, spoke to, which started calling themselves the, the working poor. Uh, what does that mean in effect, you know, for them in their daily life? Is, is there a kind of change of dynamic of, you know, how they see themselves vis-a-vis -vis the political establishment in Iran? Sure. I mean, the I'm, I'm really glad that Nagas mentioned the, the neoliberalism, because one of the things I argue in, in the effects that I see on everyday people is that the sanctions, particularly the, the vast network of maximum pressure, is 
the effect is very similar to economic austerity or neoliberal restructuring that we see, and yet it's amplified, it's intensified in the Iranian context. And so many of my interlocutors who are working class people saw tremendous losses in um, perceived opportunities, um, opportunities for education, opportunities to buy a car, opportunities to plan a future, opportunities to even, um, I don't know, have a pet, a bird. I talk about how the bird feed has, the, the price has just, you know, shot up enormously. Um, but the point of the, the, the larger impact of all of this is that these effects push people towards the services of the government. Um, they're not going to rise up against them because they need aid, they need charity. Um, and the Kayvon Harris has written a brilliant book about the dual welfare system in Iran that depends, that did not dismantle the pre-revolutionary uh, social network, uh, social security network, but also established this, you know, sort of religious endowment through beneficence and handouts. And so more and more people are dependent on that dual system um, in ways that, in ways that they never were before, never thought of themselves being, um, you know, uh, required to use, I guess, but also a different class of people. So moving from my working class interlocutors, even people who saw themselves as perhaps striver cosmopolitans um, need to depend on the government for loans to buy cars or certain things that in the past, they might have done through private banks or private networks, but now they're more and more dependent on the government. Um, so, yeah, I think is is that what you were you were getting at, or? Yeah, exactly. And and also, you know, you, you mentioned as well that uh, there was one businessman, and I forgot um, the, the name, but he, uh, I believe he, he was from Kermon and you met him uh, while he was traveling to Tehran. And so he also seemed to, to say that the opportunities to do business had opened up to um, those who were closer to the government. And so um, he did not feel that, you know, he necessarily has the same backing or, you know, the same support or the same, you know, capability for investment that, you know, those who were part of, you know, perhaps connected to the IRGC uh, or, you know, with ties to the, to the government uh, had. So if, I mean, I, it, it feels like, yeah, that, you know, the... If I can, yeah, maybe if I could just um, may add one point about this. This was a gentleman who owned a shop that made headscarves. Um, headscarves for women. And one of the things that he pointed out to me, not just in his industry, but in a lot of different industries, this, this shift from a revolutionary economy to the resistance or endurance economy um, has, has tried, you know, the government officials have tried to afford the means of production to people in Iran so that they don't they, those who can't, you know, any longer get their um, raw materials from outside. But he pointed out one of the big impediments to this is that they don't, in Iran, they don't have the machinery, or if they do, it's outdated. And the little resources the government does have, of course, they are going to award those kinds of projects to, um, to purchase or rebuild um, machinery, or even to uh, secure raw materials for manufacturing to their loyalists. So that also sh has an effect um, similar to what Nagas described. And um, I wanna go back to one quote that Mariam, we also mentioned earlier, as you said, uh, she, she said that the sanctions are slowly killing us. And you mentioned, you know, you have the term, you know, of slow violence. You know, I mean, of course, there's the humanitarian aspect as well, which is, are those sanctions in, in a way that are that they may not be intended to uh, hurting the people they were 
designed to perhaps help against their government. Uh, and, you know, we, we saw this, of course, you know, the example of uh, the sanctions on aviation, which means that, you know, there's no access to parts, that there's no servicing of, of the planes and, and, you know, all the consequences that, that we see from there. Um, but, you know, more recently as well, there was the, the limits to accessing medicine and vaccines. Uh, you know, which was particularly troublesome given the, the ravages of COVID in Iran. And one question that often comes back is, do Iranians blame their own government for their shortcomings or do they blame the U.S. administration? And I would love to turn that to you, you know, who, uh, Nargis or Arzu, you know, whoever is, is, uh, is, uh, is, is ready to take a stab at that. But I, I would love to, you know, based on, all the interviews you've done, you know, all the, the the Iranians from different walks of life you've come in contact. How do you? How do you? Uh, you know, how 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 does that come across with your interlocutors? Okay, I'll uh, I'll take a stab at it soon, and then you go first. So. I think um, this is a great question. And I think that this, and I thought a lot about this. I've, I've talked to a lot of folks about this. And um, so there is a mixed reality. Iranians are ex extremely mad and frustrated at their government for multiple reasons. Um, and so an economic mismanagement is not something new to Iran nor something that was induced by sanctions. Uh, and so in many ways, part of the frustration, especially of the past few years, has been uh, frustration at the state, at the, the Nizam, at the wider regime, for not being able to properly manage um, uh, the economy. And I should also add, all of these corruption scandals that have erupted over the past few years, especially vis-a-vis -vis the Ahmadinejad administration, which then goes back to many of, um, you know, sanctions busting induces a lot of corruptions, a lot of corruption, because sanctions busting is, is essentially about um, figuring out ways of, of getting trade across borders um, that are done off the books. And when things are done off the books, that means that there's a lot of bribing that's happening. There's a lot of cash flow that is that is going on, oftentimes much and, and many multiples above what the, the goods are actually supposed to cost. Um, and so what that means is that there are a lot of people getting kickbacks. There are a lot of people getting bribes off of this. And, um, you know, as I was talking about um, the Striver Cosmopolitans before, part, there's a, I think there's a little bit of um, something is going on here, which is that those folks who came into the Ahmadinejad administration who were reaping the benefits from these type of relationships uh, tend to come from the lower socioeconomic backgrounds, even among those who are loyalists to the Islamic Republic. And they began to enrich themselves exponentially over the time of his presidency uh, and began to show it very clearly driving Ferraris, their sons were, you know, and, and there were all of these uh, media and so and the ways that they were using social media. I mean, actually, one of the, the biggest cases is of the son of the uh, Iranian ambassador to former Iranian ambassador to Venezuela, who's now trying to become a reggaeton superstar in, uh, in Spain. Uh, but anyway, there are a lot of cases like this, and this was causing a lot of, of, of anger within even the establishment of the Islamic Republic, let alone within the general population. Um, and so there has been a lot of reaction against that and all of the, the, the numbers that have been coming out in the uh, uh, scandals around corruption that have been undertaken by the judiciary um, against folks who were aligned with uh, Ahmadinejad have caused even further anger from the general population. And so that helps lead to sort of the complication in your, in your question, Laudan, which is where do people point to, I think these, these corruption scandals make people really, I think, understandably angry at those who are a part of the, the, the wider system and who are involved in sanctions busting. But what, but what it also means, I think, on the other hand, is that those within the Ahmadinejad circle say that this is politically motivated. Now, whether they are right or wrong is, is sort of, we don't have time to go into all of that. But part of it is that it is a, um, an attempt to quell the huge jump in class and status that those folks have taken in a very short period of time. And that is leading to debates and, and 
fights within the establishment of the Islamic Republic that, that long preceded this type of stuff. Um, yet nonetheless, uh, the other thing I want to point to before I turn it over to Arzu is that sanctions uh, and the impact of sanctions, and I think by design, are incredibly difficult both for social scientists to study um, because it's very difficult to say the sanctions cause X. It's a very difficult thing to study. But secondly, and I think that this is the design of policy, is that um, anytime you pinpoint and say, well, look, sanctions have caused X thing in Iran, proponents of sanctions will say, well, no, 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 that's not the sanctions causing it, that's economic mismanagement. Or no, 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 that's not the sanctions causing it, that's Y factor that's causing it. And so th this inability to be able to pinpoint the, the cause and the impact um, also then is what, and Omar Dawashi, who's an Iraqi medical anthropologist who will be moderating uh, one of our events next week, he wrote in his book on governable life about sanctions on Iraq, is that sanctions and this kind of policy, this kind of foreign policy is meant to induce a feeling of state failure on the impacted society. And that that in itself is what needs to be studied. And whether that state failure is actually happening or not, nonetheless, the discourse that it brings about is one that is, uh, um, is very powerful and has very real consequences. Um, but I'll turn it to Adizu to talk about what, what folks within the country feel. Thank you. And um, I want to echo a lot of what you said. It's very difficult to um, show direct causation. And this gives the sanctions, sanctioneers, sanctions regime, um, a certain plausible deniability. Um, and sanctions look to the domestic audience, that is the US or whatever, um, like, oh, there's there's no cost. And that's why um, before the quote that you mentioned from Mariam, who said, this is slowly killing us, I, I offered a juxtaposition from 100 years earlier with Woodrow Wilson, who said, apply this economic, peaceful, silent, deadly remedy, and there will be no need for force. Um, and I agree that there's plenty of blame to go around. Um, but what I found interesting among my interlocutors, again, many of whom are or were very, had very um, admiring ideas about the US and even you know, had dreamed of, of immigrating to the US at some point in our, in, that I knew, knew them. Um, increasingly, I see them saying, look, these problems exist, but it's up to us inside the country to fix them. Whereas maybe five, 10, 15, 20 years ago, when I started doing research in Iran, people would say, oh, human rights, we need the UN, we need international actors to come in. But I don't hear that anymore. There has, the, the sanctions regime um, has really damaged the trust of a lot of the Iranian people to rely on international actors and institutions to shift things. And this points to one final point I wanted to make, which is about how insidious um, sanctions are. Because anybody you talk to in Iran and many of the other countries that are under regimes of sanctions, they will tell you this is economic warfare. And in many ways, we see the impact it has on institutions, infrastructure, collective punishment against um, you know, civilians and non-combatants, all of this would qualify as war crimes if we were in a war. That is to say that during war, we have applicable laws, international human humanitarian laws or the laws of war would apply. So we would have the principle of distinction, we would have the principle of necessity and the principle of proportionality apply. And yet, because these sanctions are not considered open or hot war, we don't have these guiding principles. And we have to ask ourselves, who monitors the sanctions regime? What tells us, not only if there's collective punishment or war crimes happening, but are the objectives even being met? What are the objectives? So it's very insidious in this way. It's very amorphous and very ambiguous, and it allows the sanctioners a certain plausible deniability. 
All right, so I find it fascinating what you mentioned earlier about the fact that, um, you know, in some of your previous uh, trips to Iran, there was, there was a sense that um, perhaps, or there was an openness that, you know, perhaps some level of change or support could come from abroad. Whereas now you, you seem to say that, you know, Iranians see themselves as so isolated that they're not even looking to international actors for any type of, of support or help. Um, do you think that this is a direct result of, of the maximum pressure policy? Or, you know, when do you think that that switch may have happened or that, you know, that, that slow change rather, I should say? Can, can you identify that? Um, I, it is a slow change and it didn't happen at the same time for every actor. And as you pointed out in 2015, um, people were extremely happy when I went to Iran and people who uh, follow this saw videos of Iranians partying in the streets, dancing, there was, everybody was elated. There was so much hope. Um, and little by little, people's expectations were dashed. Similar to trickle down neoliberal policies, they didn't see the gains trickling down to them. Um, and yes, um, at first they said, oh, you know, this is government mismanagement. The government is, is hoarding the money. The government is sending um, the, the, the released funds to its regional partners. But by the time I think the Trump administration came in um, and then there was talk of uh, withdrawing from from JCPOA, but simultaneously additional sanctions being added, um, people of all walks of life that I talked to began increasingly to distrust um, the US as a just and fair arbiter. And because of, I think, the impact of secondary sanctions, which are very coercive on US trade partners, um, the Iranians that I talked to found there's a certain um, um, I, I, I don't know the word like a, a, not even an unwillingness but just a inability of the EU countries that were, you know the whole point of the deal was precisely that we already knew we didn't trust the US, but what about you? these other EU countries? You were supposed to step in and their inability or unwillingness to step in has really added insult to injury and has broken the trust. So it's, it's happened over time, this slow violence. And can I also just add to what Arazu said is that I think what makes this all complicated to parse out is that it's not just economic sanctions. Economic sanctions during maximum pressure especially were happening in tandem with the Muslim ban, which, uh, uh, you know, hugely impacted Iranians. It was happening in tandem with um, Iranian students with valid student visas uh, getting caught up at the borders of the United States and being deported back to Iran uh, for no uh, real reason. Uh, at the same time that, you know, the, um, the different kind of covert operations that were going on, overt operations, the killing of uh, uh, Soleimani at the same, you know, there was multiple things that were going on in these past few years. Um, the, the ways in which uh, social media and diaspora media really uh, uh, became, there was a ton of funding put into it from the Pompeo State Department. And you could see very real, uh, uh, a uh, huge polarization began to happen on uh, within Iranian uh, discourse uh, on uh, social media, especially, but also beyond. And so, all of these things together, I think, you know, we can't separate them because they were all happening together at once. And these things, and also just the way in which Trump acted, how what he was saying, what he was doing, um, I think began to um, the BLM protests that happened last year, all of these things together meant that folks 
began to question the legitimacy of the United States in a way that was much harder to do so prior to somebody like a Trump, especially for a generation of folks growing up in the Islamic Republic where the official ideology was uh, you know, down with the US, down with imperialism, and people were so tired of that official rhetoric that they were looking for alternatives to, to become closer actually to the West. And when they saw Trump being who he was and the establishment around him and, and the European Union not willing to step in or unable to step in to sort of uh, 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 alleviate some of these sanctions pressures when Iran had not violated the JCPOA in those first year and a half, what all of that meant is it began to, Iranians began to question the United States and the Western international system in much the same way that we see within the US and around the world uh, at the same time. I wanted to invite everyone to put in uh, any questions they have in the chat. We're going to continue this conversation, but um, we can we can turn to answering questions in a, in a moment. Um, so to follow up on what uh, what both of you said, I I would really like for a second to kind of look at the the sanctions regime away from you know kind of something that has collectively uh, you know. Uh, punished uh, civilians in Iran uh, as, as an unintended consequence, perhaps, but um, kind of look at it more as, as a type of strategic diplomatic tool. And the question I have is, if we go back to 2018 um, and kind of think back at what the stated goal of the Trump administration uh, was at the time, which was to kind of, you know, to curb Iran's activities or, or um, influence in the region to eliminate the threat of Iran's ballistic missile program, um, and in general, perhaps to kind of force the, 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 the regime to concede and towards making a better deal. Um, as far as I can see, you know, not, not much of that has been achieved, but I would love to hear from both of you. And, and my question is, has, you know, ha has any of those tools, the, the sanctions tools, and you know, and we know there are there are many of them, um, you know, on different industries, on different you know designations of individuals, and so on and so forth. So it's really a package. But if you were to look at it, do you think that this uh, policy in general and the tools that of uh, sanctions that have been used have in any way brought the US, U.S. closer to to those goals? You know. Has it been achieved or not? And, and if not, you know, has it in any way uh, played into played a role into bringing the U.S. closer to its to its goals? Um, <clears throat> I, I'm not sure. We do we know what the U.S.'s objectives are? I mean, uh, we. We want to um, maybe distinguish objectives of the sanctions from the objective of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. We want to distinguish the idea of an objective from the idea of an interest. I don't believe the US interests are being served, um, but I also want to qualify one thing that you said. You said, you know, sanctions as a diplomatic tool. I, I think. Some people might think sanctions are a diplomatic tool, but I don't. And there's a lot of international relations debate about sanctions and what they are and whatnot. But what we see here is that um, sanctions are coercive. So diplomacy requires give and take. D diplomacy is what made the JCPOA come into fruition. And it allows for face-saving steps for all parties, whereas sanctions does not. And um, so it's, I don't think it is diplomacy at all. Now, um, I, I'm not sure if it's achieving it, the stated objectives. Of, you know, I can speculate based on what my interlocutors have told me. Some think that you know, Iran is actually doing more to help its regional partners as opposed to less. Iran is building um, more um, 
uh, you know, b ballistic missiles and is, is definitely not gonna come to the table for a negotiation on that. And it has reversed its um, nuclear program in, in some ways. But um, I think what's missing in this conversation is aside from the objective is the US interests. What we see ha happening here is the US taking its cue from Israel and this is what my interlocutors tell me as well, that what is being, that the impact, the, the effect of sanctions is to actually um, meet Israeli interests in the region. And true, Israel is a, is a very important partner and ally of the United States, but that doesn't mean they have the same interests. And currently there are a lot of things that through diplomacy, through that give and take um, that could happen, which, which would align better with US interests, Iranian interests, and maybe even Israeli interests in the region. Um, one last thing is the point about the objectives. Now, someone like John Bolton wrote an op-ed saying, hey, the sanctions are working, keep them up. But then we have to look at what's happening on the ground empirically as people in this series, in this Iran under sanctions project series have done and say, okay, so if, According to John Bolton, sanctions are working, then what are the, what is the objective? Is it, as Omar Dawachi said, to create a failed state, an ungovernable society? Well, we have many examples to look at from Iraq to Syria, Libya, to say, maybe that is the objective. The objective isn't to bring democracy or whatever they say. The objective is to hollow out the country in such a way that the the regime authoritarian, whatever you want to call it, is unable to govern. And that will have a tremendous impact on Iran's influence, both within its domestic politics and in the region. And where I'll pick up from that is, um, you know, so my, my area of primary research is looking at uh, the, the folks within the IRGC and, and, and within sort of their orbits. Um, and so looking and uh, talking to those folks over the past few years uh, under the Trump maximum pressure and sort of especially as the Biden administration in many ways has continued those sanctions um, uh, is that from their perspective and from their calculations and their analysis, uh, the, the sanctions have only furthered their um, belief and commitment to making Iran, um, uh, to making Iran a state that does not um, uh, feel the effects of this kind of isolation and this kind of pressure as much in the future. They're, you know, they themselves are not planning to go anywhere. Now that doesn't mean that they're actually not gonna go anywhere, right? Because as social scientists, we don't have a crystal ball and, and lots of things can happen and no one thought the Shah's regime was gonna go anywhere, but social dynamics change very fast. Nonetheless, from their perspective, what they are attempting to do and, and their own analysis is that even if there is a deal with the Biden administration, uh, there's very, um, uh, a lot of talk within their circles of maybe the Trump faction will come back into power in th three and a half years or whatever is left of, the, of uh, Joe Biden until re-election. Um, and so what do we do then? So let's say we get sanctions relief now, but what do we do if the Republicans come back and they want the sanctions uh, to be brought on or they will introduce new sanctions or whatever it may be. And so their objective is not looking at, because they've already not only have felt the burn of the Trump era getting out of the JCPOA, but these are folks that from the get-go have said, you cannot trust the United States. So their entire outlook upon international relations, whether it is vis-a-vis -vis the US or other, part, other folks within the region has been uh, shaped not only from the Iran-Iraq war of the 80s, but also what's happened in Iraq, what's happened in Afghanistan, what's happened in Libya, their own role and uh, fight uh, within uh, Syria and beyond. And so th these are the things that are shaping how they understand 
uh, both the region and international politics. And for them, the United States is not an actor that they can uh, trust, and they are actively trying to build policy and realities so that U.S. policy does not affect them as much. And so my my analysis or sort of my, my answer to your question is that um, therefore, no, not at all. U.S. objectives and policy uh, on sanctions have not uh, resulted in what the U.S. policymakers have wanted. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. I have I have um, a series of questions here, but I think I'm going to turn it to uh, Britain Alfred, and because I know we have some questions from the audience. Um, Thank you, Ladon. Thank you, everyone who's posing a question in the chat box. So our first question um, comes from an individual who's an expert on Turkey and also a very talented professor um, who I had the pleasure of being a student of. U.S. policymakers advocating targeted sanctions often ask academics and folks who are close observers of other countries how to engage the opposition at the same time. So how can academics and social science researchers help policymakers to see the disconnect here in this line of thinking? So I'll pass that over to Nargis or Arzu, whichever one of you would like to take that. Go ahead, Arzu. Um, I'm not sure I got the question. Could, would you mind repeating it? I'm so sorry. Yeah, of course, no problem. So the person is asking that policymakers who are often crafting these sanctions to be very targeted will also ask, okay, we want to carry out these sanctions, but we also want to engage the opposition within the country and how obviously those two goals are in, in some ways opposed to one another, or if you disagree with that proposition, you can speak to that as well. And so how can academics and social science researchers um, help policymakers to understand the difficulty in trying to achieve both of those things while carrying out sanctions. Well, go ahead. Well, I, I don't have a lot to say about this because um, uh, th there's a lot of literature on whether even targeted sanctions do work or don't work or what have you. Um, one way to engage the opposition might be to um, update the OFAC uh, guiding principles on Iran and allow um, transfers of technology, just update the possibilities for people to use social media. That was something that I saw. But um, one of the ways in which this is really problematic is as we've described, um, and as a lot of scholarship shows, the more the uh, outside forces sanction um, a country, in, including especially its leaders, tar but with targeted sanctions, the the country become the government becomes much more authoritarian, much more violent, and so there's little and less and less um, opposition to engage to begin with. And like I said, the the interlocutors I know which include people in government, people who work in the government but oppose that government secretly even, have said to me, they don't see, after this experience with the JCPOA, they don't see how they can trust the US. So even if they were to work with the, the US or even the EU, they don't, they don't trust them. So the Biden administration, has talked about um, me measures in, you know, gaining trust. And maybe that's what needs to happen first before they start um, arming the opposition or, or, or tar adding more targeted sanctions, rebuild trust. And the other thing I'll just say really quickly to that is that actually, I mean, at, at least within the case of Iran, uh, many, many civil society leaders have said that they oppose sanctions precisely because of what Arzu said, which is that sanctions, because it's economic warfare and it's also 
um, accompanied by all of these other policies against Iran, what it's doing is really securitizing the domestic sphere. And so those who are very actively involved as civil society activists in Iran uh, have been very vocal about uh, uh, not wanting sanctions because they say that th then therefore they can't do their opposition. That's different from some other contexts in which opposition forces within societies are asking for sanctions. Uh, but, but in the Iranian case, that's we're not really seeing uh, that. I would love to continue with this conversation. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I just wanted to uh, say a quick note here, which is really to encourage everyone to read both of these papers and to keep an eye on, on rethinking Iran because there's uh, just a, a, a stream of wonderful events coming with experts who um, really know uh, Iran and have been doing research in depth. So keep an eye on that. Uh, and we also have a couple of events uh, on Iran under sanctions as part of the, the, the wider initiative coming up in the, in the coming weeks. So thank you, Narges. Thank you, Arzu. And thank you to the, to the team here.